It's episode 120 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is Katie Swindler. She's a design strategist for Allstate's Innovation Group and the author of the new book, Life and Death Design. We're going to discuss how the products we design can more effectively empower people during acutely stressful situations. Katie, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Pleasure yeah. to be here. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to have you here. I hope this isn't too acutely stressful for you, though. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm empowered with coffee, so I think we'll be okay. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. That's great. Hey, as a, a just an amazing book. This is something that I have I'll be honest with you, I've struggled uh with this concept throughout my career. I'll tell you why. Um I started way back in print design. Um, mm. you know, at the dawn of the internet, I was working at newspapers <laughs> mm-hmm. and you know, things like that. And I remember the relief I felt at like starting to work on the web where if we saw something wrong, we could change it. Yes. And and I and I started from this whole perspective of like everything is really ephemeral and nothing that we <laughs> design have the consequences of real world design. Yes. And I took that to the point of even like it's not just that like once a newspaper is out, the error is there. But <laughs> yeah. like we don't design bridges. Like we don't design houses. If our design fails, people don't die. And I think that was <laughs> again, 25 years ago, super naive because now we have digital (laughs) systems that Mm -hmm. if things go wrong, people can die all the time. And like that short period of time where I was like, (laughs) oh, this is so much easier. (laughs) Right. Like, yeah, didn't foresee the depth of, uh, of the systems that we build that now, like the, the importance of those in our lives today. Absolutely. I, yeah, I've, 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 I've certainly had the same experience. You know, I've worked in marketing for most of my life. And mm-hmm. actually one of the reasons I wanted to uh, write this book is because I felt a, a lot of that, you know, like, oh, I'm making an app to make cat gifts. Like I've literally done that as <laughs> a, a project in my life. It was very fun. I, 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 you know, honored to be able to work on it. But at the same time, it's like, it, what what are the consequences of of this? You know, am I am I am I doing my best life's work here? You know, and and so uh, wanting to move towards uh, work that matters. And as you said, over the past you know 10, 20, 30 years, we've watched technology become so core and central. And especially in twenty twenty, I think that's where it really came home, where every single human interaction that we had was basically through technology at that point, right? Once we all were stuck at home and it, it really became, you know, I think sometimes, you know, the tech community, we, we self-aggrandize a bit, you know, about <laughs> the importance of our work, but I, I think it really came home to roost in 2020 when we were all stuck at home. And if you wanted to get anything done, um, pretty much it was, had to be done through the computer. You know, you remember that yeah. bad scramble, um, and then it was things like Zoom and and Mural and all, all these online tools that had been kind of niceties before now became so mission critical. You know, I've talked to uh, designers who were helping, uh, uh, it, it, you know, uh, John Hopkins University, like do um, major research around coronavirus and they're setting, they're scrambling to set up teams and uh, murals and, and get these, these scientists able to do the collaboration they needed to do from, um, uh, you know, from lockdown. Uh, And, and it, it really, you know, sort of changed the, the way that I looked at tools, even, even as I was writing the book, 
um, yep. uh, yeah, to, to, to be doing, I didn't, I didn't mean to write this book in lockdown, but <laughs> it, 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 it ended up happening that way. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. There must've been so much resonance with like what's happening in the world and the topic that you're addressing, um, yeah. you know, like that's, uh, pretty remarkable. It was really interesting timing. I, I actually, you know, I, I, I'm published with Rosenfeld media. I'm so generous to, to take a chance on a new author. And, um, we had been talking for almost a year before um, we we signed the contract. I signed the contract, I think, in January uh, 2020. And I was supposed to start writing the book March 15th, 2020. Yeah. Right? Two days later, you know, I, that March 15th was the day that I got notice that my daughter's school was going to be closed for two weeks. Right. For two, remember when it was right. going to be two weeks? Right. Right. <laughs> right? Yep. <laughs> and, you know, so so literally, like, my time period of writing this book was the pandemic and, uh, just, um, yeah, it's so much about researching stress during one of, I would say the most stressful period of my life. Uh, uh, there were just so many different things that I, I saw in the research because of my state of mind at the time, yeah. you know, there's, there's something that, you know, the, the brain logs memories differently when we are stressed and, um, we actually have a lot of protective mechanisms in our brain to, to protect us from, uh, stressful memories and to, they kind of get stored different ways. And, um, so there are some things that we can really only understand. I'll, I'll use a, a nerdy tech term grok, right? You can really mm. only grok them <laughs> when, when you are, um, it, when you're in the middle of them, right. When you are in the stressed out state of mind. And so to be doing sort of the scientific you know, what is that right brained sort of stuff? And the, and the, and the, and, but being in that stressed out state of mind and being able to kind of combine the two over the course of this really intense period um, of our lives um, and then write it down in the yeah. moment, right. Get, get those insights down. Um, I, I really feel like this book is the best it could be because of the time that it was written, at least the best I could write it. So it was, yeah, there, there was a lot there. That's great. That's great. Um, well, let's get it, let's get into it a little bit. Yeah. The, um, yeah. One of the things, uh, that really struck me like that, that, that I, um, I could really, um, sort of take in personally was, uh, was the notion of how our brains, uh, essentially lie to us when we are, under a tremendous amount of stress, right? It, it mm -hmm. reminded me actually of, uh, you know, the trope in uh, fiction around the unreliable narrator, uh, where at some point in a, in some stories, you suddenly realize that the person telling you the story is either like unhinged or outright lying. I think like the classic example or, is that uh, that TV series, Mr. Robot, where, you know, you're oh, like, right. oh my God, wow. Like none of this actually happened. You know, that kind of stuff. Spoiler, <laughs> but I guess it's been 10 years ago, but whatever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I had that like sort of a dozen years ago, maybe a little longer. I, I kind of, I came to a slow realization that like, oh, the stuff that kind of drops into my head from time to time is not necessarily always helpful. Like, yeah. and it's, and it's not me, right? This is my own practice of mindfulness and, and also, you know, reading people like Sam Harris or, uh, Daniel Kahneman, you know, that, mm -hmm. that like, oh, there's different ways we process the world. Sometimes it's very, like, it just feels right. And often isn't. And other times we take time and really, you know, use logic and things like that. 
And um, that felt like kind of an underpinning to what you were talking about, that there is a, there is a set of like almost phases that we go through when something traumatic happens and that our decision-making in the earlier stages of uh, stress and trauma is is very often much more focused on self-preservation than finding the right answer. Yes. The correct answer. You know what I mean? Um, Anyway, I just found, and then using that then as a baseline of like, uh, how does that change the kind of user-centered design that we do for products for in that period? So I found it really, really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. You know, for for me, it makes sense to think about the stress response in sort of these five phases, right? You've, you've got, sometimes you have a startle response, right? And that is kind of its own thing. Um, It's purely reflexive. Um, it, 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 it's very sort of movement based, right. It's, it's mostly yeah. like getting out of the way, right. right <laughs> getting right, out right. of the way. I touched um, the hot or, pan. I yanked ex- my arm back. Exactly. Or, you know, throwing your arms up to block something that might be hitting your face. Right. right? Like those are, right. those are just like, it's basically all movement based. So that you got your startle response. That's maybe, you know, two or three seconds. If it kicks your heart rate up, which often does the effects of it, um, can last basically the effects of a startle effect last about as long as your heart rate stays mm-hmm. elevated. And by the time it comes back down, you, you, you're done. So you got the startle effect and then you've got the intuitive assessment where your where your uh, brain sort of looks and says, what is this like that I've experienced before? And is it dangerous? <laughs> right. Is it going to, yep. is it dangerous? Do I need to, do I need to go to full fight or flight mode or was it just startling and I can calm back down, you know? Um, so you've got that intuitive assessment where you're like, go, no, go. Uh, and then you've got that, uh, fight. If, if it says, yeah, that's dangerous, then you've got your fight or flight response, fight, uh-huh. flight or freeze sometimes it's called. And, um, and then from there, you know, that, that kind of lasts <laughs> until our, um, prefrontal cortex catches up. Fourth phase is that um, reasoned reaction where we sort of uh, that thinking part of our brain, that logic reason center catches up and says, yeah, but is it really dangerous? You know, and sometimes it agrees, right? It's like, oh yeah, no, that is, you know, a pit bull chasing you run, 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 right? Like keep going with that flight response. That is the right response. And sometimes it's like, whoa, 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 come down. (laughs) Like like that, that, that is, you know, you don't have to react in that way. It's not really as dangerous. I, you know, I, I know more, (laughs) you know, it's the, sometimes they call uh, it the, um, uh, like the CEO of the brain, right? Like the, that prefrontal cortex area. And then the fifth, the fifth, part is the recovery phase, right? Once the danger has passed, there's a whole separate system, the parasympathetic system that comes in and calms everything down. Um, and then you have to really filter out, like, you know, you get adrenaline dump, you get cortisol dumped into your bloodstream and you've got to take the time to kind of get it out of your system. Um, and that can last hours, especially the cortisol, um, which is affecting, you know, how decisions are being made. Um, but yeah, you, you know, you're talking about the, the, that those first initial reactions and it, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, you you think of them as unreliable because though Kahneman and, and others that you mentioned, um, have done a lot of awesome work to point out how much bias, you know, how bias affects, uh, our decision-making in those moments, I'd say your initial intuitive reaction to things is right 95% of the time, 99% of the time, 
really 99.999% of the time, <laughs> depending on what level that you're, you're thinking about it. Right. Uh, so much of, of what we do day to day is sort of automated, right? Like you right. think about getting into your car and, and you drive someplace that you've been a hundred times before and you're listening to your podcast or you're, you're, you know, you're doing whatever you're on the phone with a friend and you get there and you have no memory of how you got there. Right. Think of how complicated that process is. And it was done completely autonomously. Um, well, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, autonomously, yeah. <laughs> you know, through, through that whole process, that's how reliable your intuition is. And, and the, those sort of automated processes is that they can get you all the way across town without you making any conscious decisions at all. That's incredibly reliable. And so we, I don't, I don't think that intuition gets enough credit uh, mm, all the time for, for how yeah. much good it does us uh -huh. and how very often it is right. Um, but when it's wrong, things can go bad real, real fast, real, go, go real sideways. Right. <laughs> so, sure. so it is important to sort of understand when it can go right and when, when it can't. So you, you mentioned Daniel Kahneman, a, amazing researcher for those who aren't familiar, Nobel prize winning economist who wrote thinking fast and slow. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, in his book, because I actually read his book for, to, to, for mine, um, early on, uh, in my research. Mm -hmm. And in his book, he talks about this, he calls it uh, an adversarial collaboration with uh, a guy yeah, named that. Gary Klein. Um, and uh, Klein is somebody who has made his career, where Kahneman has been researching, you know, bias. Klein has made his career researching um, expert intuition. So what are the situations under which firemen and nurses and, and the military, you know, soldiers have developed excellent, reliable expert intuition that saves lives in the moment, right? He's, he, he, in, in Klein's book, uh, Sources of Power, um, he, he takes a very, you know, scientific approach to, um, uh, researching, uh, the the that the development of expert intuition and how decisions are made, and um, uh, you know he 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 interviewed like a bunch of nurses and and he had stories where the the nurse would be able to walk into a room and look at a baby and say that baby is you know like that baby is about to die right and 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 get in there and get that intervention and you ask the nurse like how did you know you know that I just knew right? She doesn't know. She's not conscious level of how she knew. But if you sit her down as the researchers did and you, and you interview her and she'll be able to tell you, oh, you know, the color and, and the way the chest was right. moving and, and I touched its skin and it was, it was colder than it should have been. You know, there are these tiny little clues that her subconscious picked up on and she was able to, to intervene. So, you know, there are really important things that our subconscious and our intuition sure, sure, sure. <laughs> intuition does. And so, you know, Kahneman and Klein worked together and they actually were able to come to an agreement coming from their very opposite uh, takes on intuition. Um, and they came up with uh, two ways that you can say, oh, in this situation, you can rely on somebody's intuition. And in other situations, you can't. But in situations with these two, two elements... You can you can rely on somebody's intuition. So, and those two elements are when the situation is uh, regular enough that you can learn the 
you know, you, you, you're able to learn to predict the outcomes, right? Cause and effect right. are consistent enough. And then that you have enough time to learn those. So people can learn very complex things, you know, think about chess and, and, and medics, medicine, right? Is, is it's sort of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours. Oh, ex- yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Is yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. So when you have those two things, but there are situations where the, the, the environment is not regular enough to be able to learn it. Um, pretty much anytime you're dealing with human beings. So like, you know, they did a bunch of research on like judges being able to predict future behavior of, you know, uh, are, are they going to offend again? Like you can't do it. Like there's too many variables, uh, how you can't predict like how well a kid is going to do in college, right? Like college admissions, intuition, not, like, like right. not, yeah, yeah. not, not, uh, a stock market, too many variables. You can't there, you just can't predict it. It's not predictable. Um, and certainly not learnable within, a, within a lifetime. Um, but there are many things, as we mentioned, medicine, um, dealing with, um, you know, battle uh, techniques, um, certain things where where you've got uh, or, or, or like being able to spot forgeries, you know, things like that, um, where over time you are able to um, you've got a certain number of things and you can kind of learn them over time. So as designers, being able to recognize which one of those environments we're designing for is critical to understand mm. which type of approach you want to take. Like, are you leaning into that person's expert intuition or are you in an environment where either they haven't had time to learn or it's really impossible to ever learn no matter how much time you put into it. Um, and, and, and then, you know, you, you can, uh, from, from there, you can uh, tailor the sorts of interventions that, that you do to, to maximize the effectiveness of either intuition-based or not. Oh, fantastic. Uh, let's dig into how we actually tease that apart and what the decisions are, but let's take a little break first. We'll be right back. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. Today's internet users expect a fast way of experience. doesn't matter how well you've targeted your marketing content or how beautifully you've designed your website. They'll bounce if a page is loading too slowly. So with real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover your website performance and how it affects your visitor's experience. You can take action before your business is impacted. All of this for as low as $10 a month. Whether your visitors are dispersed around the world or across browsers, devices, and platforms, Pingdom can help you identify bottlenecks, troubleshoot performance, and make informed optimizations. Real user monitoring is an event-based solution, so it's built for scalability. This means you can monitor millions of page views and not just take samples of your data. And you can do that at an affordable price. Get live site performance visibility today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now. Get a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Then, when you're ready to buy, you can use the code PRESENTABLE at checkout to get an awesome 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and RelayFM. All right. So you're, uh, you're setting up sort of the decision-making we can do as designers to figure out what the right solutions would be. Just take us through a little bit of the basics then. Uh, if we have an understanding of the sort of intuition or the experience level of our uh, intended audience, uh, how do we even begin? Yeah. So, it, you know, if you're designing uh, a system for someone who is, ha- has that expert intuition built up, 
um, and uh, you're designing for uh, users who are under a high amount of stress. So one of the designers I interviewed, uh, she designs things for intelligent analysts, uh, for like like those who might work at the CIA. She could neither confirm nor deny whether she <laughs> she she designed for uh, analysts at the CIA. Uh, but uh, uh, you know the sorts of interfaces that she designs for these intelligent analysts. They are very different from the sort of interface you would design for a general consumer, right? General consumers, you want something super simple, lots of white space, right? Like break things down one step at a time, thinking like, you know, TurboTax type of interface where you, you know, you're you're sort of breaking it down step by step, taking them through it. These analysts, they want exactly the opposite type of interface for their day-to-day work. They want to see all of their data at once um, because they're looking for patterns. Um, But it has to have just cruel hierarchy, right? You just have to just zone in on that hierarchy so hard um, in order to give them the structure to that data that they need. Um, And she talked a lot about um, designing interfaces that let the machines do what the machines are good at and humans do what the humans are good at. So machines are really great at accuracy. They're great at crunching data. They're great at things like remembering where a piece of data came from, right? Like it can link back. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas a human intelligence officer who is looking at that data, they're looking for unusual patterns. Now you can we're starting to be able to train our AI, but it's still imperfect. Most of it is looking for patterns right. that's already been. Right, right. They're getting a little bit better at, at, at finding outliers, but still, you know, um, there's there's still no replacement for for sort of a human interpretation of data, um, even in most sophisticated intelligence areas. So the they've got all of these different pieces of data. The data comes from sources that are very reliable and very complete (laughs) all the way to like super full of holes. And really the source could be lying to you, right? Like it could be a converted enemy combatant that might actually be a double agent sort of, you know, pieces of information. Right. And so each of these pieces of data need to be, you know, gathered, tracked, coded uh, per reliability. Have they been, you know, sort of uh, double checked, on either side, right? Like, like how, how reliable are these pieces of data? And then when they are trying to build these reports to say, you know, A leads to B leads to C and, and therefore X, Y, Z, right? They want to be able to see, okay, like where are all of these things coming from? How reliable are all of them? If I'm using 33 sources in this report, um, how many of them are from you know, reliable sources versus mid-reliable sources versus unreliable sources. Um, and that's how they're checking their bias. So these, these professionals are actually extremely aware of their personal bias, um, and they want um, interfaces that help them keep it in check. Um, but you still need that, that, that human insight um, to be able to interpret this data. And so being able to have the computer, you know, run... Like take the same set of data and show it in 18 different chart formats, right? So that that human can look right. at it and be like, oh, there's some outliers or, oh, there's an interesting cluster. It would take somebody days to plot out that data by hand, 
right? Um, but a computer can do it in in seconds. And so, you know, thinking about assigning the right work to to the right groups, um, and and really being able to to help them hone in on that. Um, that's really so. That's interesting. It yeah. reminds me of I think. Uh, it was an example in uh, Don Norman's book, uh, mm-hmm. The Design of Everyday Things, mm-hmm. right? Way back. Um, yeah. But there was this photograph of uh, some technician sitting in front of a big control panel at a nuclear reactor. And they had all these levers. It was a very physical interface. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had replaced the, the, the handles on the levers with different beer taps because they had all been identical previously and they made mistakes and the mistakes were potentially, you know, devastating. Um, but realistically would shut the reactor down for hours at a time just by pulling the wrong lever. So they, so they kind of hacked a way to like increase the, uh, or decrease the likelihood of error, uh, in a really tangible way. But it it reminds me a little bit of what you're talking about in that there are expert systems Mm -hmm. with people who from time to time have to use those systems like your intelligence officers who have an hour to go through a Mm -hmm. petabyte of information, like Mm -hmm. go, right. We need Mm -hmm. this right now. They're waiting. And, um, and, and that sounds a little bit like the process of like, how can we make this such that it is so deeply and profoundly like wired into them? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. that, and we can assume a tremendous amount of training. Mm-hmm. Now I would imagine then there's the opposite side, that other scenario that they or the other type of uh, intuition uh, without any training, without any experience. Uh, yeah. I, the first thing that popped in my head was uh, a defibrillator in an airport, you know, yes. one of those, yeah. like they've got that interface. Nobody like first time you've ever used it, life or death situation, yeah. hands are shaking. What do I do? That yeah. kind of thing. So anyway. Yeah. I, I, it's a great example because, you know, I, one of my favorite things are, are the talking defibrillators. I think it's a, it's yeah. a brilliant, you know, not only is it more accessible, right? Because <laughs> who knows, like somebody who has major sight issues or, sure. um, you know, is actually, you know, completely blind, maybe trying to use this defibrillator to save somebody's life. Right. But uh, really for all users, it is incredibly helpful to have those sort of multiple instruction points, right. To, to be able to help them understand what do I do next? I just want somebody to tell me what to do. Um, but you know, to, to the amount of design and thinking that goes into those, uh, defibrillators in order to, um, ensure that anybody in any language can use them, you know, if they're, they're a non-English speaker or non, you know, whatever language of the, of the product speaker, um, that they can still use them. Um, that it's clear, you've got to have enough detail on it um, that um, there's really common mistakes um, it, that people make when trying to use these defibrillators. The, the biggest one being that they put it on over somebody's clothes um, as opposed to putting the, the shock pads onto the person's skin. They mm-hmm. put it on uh, over their shirt. Um, so you have to have enough detail in your illustrations, usually they're illustrated. They've got like, like put this one here, put that one there. And they like draw a little person and you kind of show where it is, you know, placed on the body where the pad is placed on the body. Um, so, you know, thinking through all of that and, and pulling it down to its simplest form. Um, one of the biggest blockers for people uh, actually is, is just getting started. Um, when you're designing for somebody who is in that panic mode, one of the most important things that you can do is just 
give them a start here button, you know, or equivalent for, for your product. Uh, step one, um, because it's so easy to get overwhelmed and, and to, to have your fight or flight turn into a freeze response. Right. Um, and, and one of the best ways designs can help get somebody out of that sort of unreasoned fight or flight response is to say, Hey, do this right now. Right. Like what, once that, that, that comes through loud and clear, Oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. That is when that prefrontal cortex kicks back in and takes back the wheel (laughs) from from your panicked, uh, sort of, sort of, uh, survival self. Um, and so giving people really clear instructions step-by-step, really reducing the number of choices that they have to make down to zero. If you can't just give them a linear path. Um, people do, don't, don't do well with choices. Um, especially unclear choices, right? Uh, they actually do very well when it's a clear choice. Uh, your, your brain, that cortisol, one of the consequences of cortisol is black or white thinking and faster decision-making. It really just drives decision-making, but they will make decisions incredibly fast. If you're trying to ask them to put any kind of thought into decision, they'll skip right over it and just go with their very first gut instinct. So if that's not the right sort of decision-making, right? Like right. you, you actually want them to think about it. It's very difficult to get somebody to think that way when they're in a stress situation. So you've got to put a lot of like stoppers in. So let me ask you about that. Uh, there, there are clearly a bunch of best practices, but how do you, how do you evaluate their effectiveness? Like I think I'm thinking like, you know, you could ask people in retrospect, what was it like when you were in that situation to mm-hmm. do a bit of discovery research, mm-hmm. but for like, <laughs> yeah, right. But we can't yeah. remember. You just said yeah. like, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, we yeah. store information differently in times of stress. So, um, and then in validation research, do you say like that person is dying? So, you know, yeah. let me get you into a stressful situation if, like it all feels very abstract. Yeah, it's it's really difficult. So I've I've talked to several uh, researchers who have to research things. So um, one group I talked to, um, they uh, design medical devices, and many of their devices are used by uh, military medics in war zones. And they told me that when they are testing their products, they'll actually set up a sample OR and they have these sound systems set up as part of the OR where they play soundtracks from war zones Hmm. during the surgery. So you've got the sound of bombs going off, the sound of helicopters flying overhead, the sound of people yelling and screaming while they're trying to perform these surveys using the medical devices that they have created. So that's, you know, one way, um, sort of immersive. Another way I found, I, I, I talked to, um, a former director of, of human factors from Ford. And uh, he was talking about they at Ford, they have these testing domes. They are, you know, eight, 10 feet up in the air on these like hydraulic systems. The domes are big enough that they can fit vehicles in. And so they like lift up these, these vehicles uh, full-size prototypes of the cars that they're designing with, you know, like a full thing inside um, the dome is, is built so that they can project like road conditions, 360 for these drivers. And they'll do things like they'll take it, they'll take a test driver, put them inside this dome and like have them drive for eight hours of like boring 
like roads, like boring road, like, you know, boring country roads. And then these sneaky scientists, they'll, they'll be, they'll just wait until that person starts to like look drowsy and then they'll like push the button and like this deer will like jump in front of their vehicle and they're like trying to like test and see what their reactions to the deer are right because like that's that's what you got to do in order to like get these simulations in a in a safe situation to 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 test those reactions so sometimes you know that, that's wild like that, that's full tech right like that's that that's a really immersive um, but you know, I I actually think there's a lot of potential in VR uh, for mm. being able to uh, be testing um, people's reactions in in various situations. VR, AR. Um, there's uh, a lot that a soundscape can do uh, to really put somebody in an immersive experience. VR is being used more and more to train soldiers um, because you've really got to have a lot of repetition in order to train somebody at the instinct level, right? Like when you're training somebody like a soldier or a driver, right? Like they can't learn the lesson that you're trying to teach in their, in their thinking brain, right? right. Like they, right. you have to, you have to embed it because it, it's, it's a split second. You're, you're not having that, that prefrontal cortex intervention because it, it's a split second decision. Um, especially when you're tr- trying to teach somebody when to shoot somebody and when not to shoot right? Like we want our soldiers to be able to make good decisions in those moments. Um, because uh, frankly, you know, like it, the preservation, you know, can, can have them acting inappropriately. So, you know, this, this, this training really should be reducing violence. Um, and, those the I've, I've talked to soldiers who have gone through this training. I it, it was a friend of mine, Alex, and she she served um, uh, early in Afghanistan, so they didn't have the VR sets yet. But she did a lot of screen based training, where it, big screens, like big big projections, and she's standing full full uniform. She's got a full size gun that's been modified to work with the system, and that's what you want. You want people training with like right. in as real a situation as you can. And they would just run these simulations on the screen where, you know, somebody would um, be walking towards, you know, she's she, the scenario. She's, you know, she's on the line uh, uh, at the at the front gate of a base. Right. And there's somebody, uh, a, a local person walking toward the 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 front and they're not paying attention and they're walking and the commanding officer is telling them to stop over and over again. And it's like, what do you do soldier? What do you do? What do you do? They're approaching, they're getting closer. They're getting closer. What do you do? And, um, uh, you know, if you hold long enough, you find out that, oh, he's just got headphones in under his head, you know, uh, under his head scarf. Right. And you just couldn't see them. So it's like, trying to teach people and give them a bunch of different variations on these scenarios of like, oh, that's a mother and a baby and they're coming forward. Oh, but actually it's not a baby. There's a bomb in that carriage. Right? right. Like, and, and what are the, what are the subtle factors that, that you want your soldiers to pick up on, to be able to tell the difference between these life and death situations? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah she, she actually really uh, credits that, training that she did with, uh, saving a man's life. She was out on patrol and they had got, they were out, um, you know, on patrol, they were coming back towards the base. They had gotten word that there was Taliban in the area. And so they were hot footing it back to the base. 
um, walking through these fields. And, um, you know, it's a, it's agricultural area. There's these like low stone walls and out of the corner of her eye, she sees a guy with what looks to her like a rifle duck down behind a, a wall. And, you know, she brings up her gun. She's got the safety off. She's yelling at him, you know, enemy spotted for you know, right. 40 yards, you know, like she's like, uh, you know, yelling at him, trying to get him to come up. And this guy springs back up from behind the wall and it, it looks like he's got a rifle in his hand, but she holds because of her training. She holds because she wants, she wants to see that intensifier. She wants to see that, that, uh, that rifle come down onto his shoulder before she takes that, that final action. She said, you know, my finger was on the trigger when I realized that he wasn't holding a rifle. He was holding a shovel. He was, he's just right. a farmer, but he was scared. He didn't understand. And, um, you know, she was able to, to hold long enough to, to figure that out. And she really credits her training through that repetition that she had built the right instincts in order to, to guide her in that moment to, to make yeah. the right decision. Save that guy's life. So. Wow. Wow. Um, I think many of the designers uh, out there probably uh, don't find themselves designing for scenarios <laughs> with, with such consequences, um, yeah. but any of the ones really that we've been discussing throughout this uh, episode. Uh, however, I think one of the ways, one of the framings you use is also that um in scenarios that aren't specifically life and death, you can mm -hmm. still sort of think of your users. Heroes is the word that you used. And I thought that was <laughs> yeah. really powerful, right? Talking about perseverance and, um, and kind of, I don't know, uh, stepping up, Yeah, which is a really interesting framing that we can bring to kind of all of the design work that we do really. Yeah. I, I, you know, not all heroes wear capes, right? Like there, there's, <laughs> right. there's so, so many, moments in our lives where, you know, are you going to do the right thing or aren't you? And, and those can have consequences from life and death all the way to just, you know, is it the right thing, right? Like, are, are you helping somebody out? Um, are you correcting, uh, something that's gone sideways? Um, you know, so, so often we think that machines are going to you know, correct human errors, right. but we discount the thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of times that, that humans intervene to correct the, the correct errors, right? They, they, it's, it's the human intervention moment that, that saves the day. Right. Um, when, when something is, is about to go wrong and, and it takes critical thinking. It takes uh, a, a bit of bravery to go against the grain um, or to do something off script or that is technically sometimes technically against the rules, but it's the right thing to do. Um, and so thinking about how do we create as designers, how do we create situations in which we are empowering people to, to, to act that way, right. To right. do the right thing. The science in this area talks a lot about self-efficacy. So um, where self-confidence uh, is, is sort of, you know, the confidence that you have in your own ability to do something, right? Self-efficacy is, um, uh, it, it includes your self-confidence, like how, how good am I at this thing? How, how likely am I to be successful? Um, but it also takes into account uh, the environment around you. 
So uh, I could be, you know, the best soccer player in the world, but my, you know, I, my self-efficacy correctly tells me that I'm not going to be able to make a goal against 600 mile an hour wins, right? Because there, there's things outside of how amazing a, a soccer player I am that's going to affect my success rate. And so as designers, you know, we can do everything. If we want somebody to take a positive action, we have to convince them. The number one thing that determines whether or not somebody takes action in a, in a moment is whether or not they believe that they will be successful. Most mm. people don't do things if they feel it has no chance of success. They just won't even try because why waste the effort? And so you have to at least give them a glimmer of hope <laughs> that, that some action is going to be better than no action. Um, because just, you know, it, it's an evolutionary trait that if you, that, that you don't burn expendable resources in futile ex, ex, attempts because there may, something may change. And then if you've burned all your resources doing something that you know is futile, then you'd have nothing left to to take advantage of a, of a momentary thing. Right. So it's, right, it's evolutionary. Right. It's, it's, we, we work yeah. that way for a reason. And so, you know, it, it, if you think about somebody stuck down in a well, right. You stuck down way at the bottom of the well and you look up and you think, Oh, there's, there's no way that I can climb out of this. Well, right. Like I, I, <laughs> I'm not a super wall climber. I'm not Spider-Man. And so somebody would probably just sit at the bottom of the well. Maybe they would call for help, but they wouldn't make an attempt to climb at all um, unless they saw something, right? They they saw a ladder just out of reach or they saw, you know, they, they saw footholds or something that gave them this idea that there is some chance for success. Um, uh, in, in design, sometimes we talk about an information scent. Right. I, I always imagine, I always imagine like the cartoons where somebody's like smelling something tasty and they're like floating along behind like, the wavy <laughs> right, lines. Right, like right. whenever we talk about information scent, that is always like, ooh, I'm gonna follow this this information scent to to what I'm looking for. Um, but when we're designing interfaces, you know, and we want somebody to take an action, whether that's an intervention on something critical or just like take an action, like buy something, right? Like, like if we right. want somebody to take an action, they have to believe that they will be successful. You know, there's this like, will people scroll or won't they scroll? How far will they scroll? You know, like that, like there's a great debate in UX, sure. right? And, and sure. like, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like people will scroll until they believe that they're not going to have success, right? right? Like people take actions until they believe that it's not going to be successful anymore. And then they stop. So, so if they, if they look at an interface and, and they see that there's something lower, right? Like they have that information sense that there's something lower. If they, they look at it and the picture seems complete and there's nothing that kind of tells you there's something lower on the page, they probably won't scroll, right? They don't have a lot of indicators that there's something successful down the page. Right. But if they can like see the tops of the words, right? And they, they can see that there's something else up down there and they're experience with previous sites tells them what they're looking for is probably on the homepage, then they'll scroll. Right. Yeah. So, so this idea of like information sent and, 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 and like prepping somebody to have the sense of success, like potential success, yeah. that's really the, one of the best ways to, to spur action in your user. Um, and, and like I said, that can, that can be for mundane activities that you're trying to spur them to do all the way to, you know, I, I, I believe that if I keep, you know, if I keep trying new things in this surgery, that I'm going to save this child's life. 
right? right. Like, like, like it spans it spans the scope of it, and and it's it, and it's all back to to basics, like the basic survival evolutionary behaviors that that we've developed over time as a species. It all scales, and and the same with stress, like you know, fight or flight response is seen at all levels, right? Like flight, you know, exit, like when when you get when you get spooked on a website and you're like, oh my God, am I, am I someplace I'm not supposed to be, right? What do you do? You X out. That's the flight response, right? right. <laughs> like at yeah. the mundane level, right? Like the fight response is like posting one star reviews or, you know, yelling at a chat bot, whatever, you know what I mean? Like and the freeze response is making no decision, right? Like that, like classic, you know, right. abundance of choice, right? Like yep. You, yep. you get overwhelmed by a choice. And, and you just make no decision at all. That's a freeze response at, at the mundane level. And, and it, and it, it's, it's all in there. It, it's just how, how far does it scale and, and how as designers, can we circumvent those, those, those different instincts um, in order to get people back onto the track that we want them to get on? I really like that. Uh, it's sort of accumulation of small wins to build confidence, to build self-confidence, mm-hmm. yeah. to, to make people feel like they they are agents in their own progress. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. That's really that's really helpful. Um, look, the book is fantastic. Thank you. It's called Life and Death Design from uh, our friends over at Rosenfeld Media. Uh, let's see. We're in the we're recording now in the middle of November. Uh, I don't think the book is quite available yet. Is it soon? It is uh, November twenty sixth, oh. uh, Black Friday. Black Friday <laughs> <laughs> goes on sale. You can um, uh, get the PDF downloaded immediately, and uh, uh, hopefully the the book will ship before the holidays, so you can you can have it uh, uh, for for the winter solstice related holiday of your choice. There you go. Uh, we will be pounding down the doors at Walmart to get. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on Black Friday to get your book. That's wonderful. Uh, where, where can we learn more? I'll link uh, in the show notes here to uh, the page on Rosenfeld Media where they can see the book. Uh, yeah. But you've got some, uh, you got an online presence as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the website uh, is lifeanddeathdesign.com. Pretty straightforward. Uh, you can um, uh, learn about the book. You can, uh, I, I, I do speaking on this topic as well. I'm in the midst of developing a, a workshop that should be ready in a few months um, as well. And um, uh, the information will be up there. Uh, and then I also tweet at Katie Swindler UX, K-A-T-I-E-S-W-I-N-D-L-E-R-U-X. So you can follow me there. Great. I'll put links to that as well in the show notes. Katie, hey, thanks so much for being on the program. It's just been a joy. Yeah. And thanks for having me. This was great. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.